Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. One of the things I want to do with this show and have wanted to do with it from the very first is to talk to people who aren't always on these sorts of shows, the people who work behind the scenes in Hollywood. And I don't just mean writers and directors, but I mean people who design your favorite shows or shoot your favorite shows or edit your favorite shows and movies. Uh, and that is why I wanted to have on today Anne Crabtree, who is the costume designer for many great television shows, but in particular right now she's working on The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, which is one of my favorite new shows of the moment, and is very costume heavy. If you've ever seen it, or even if you haven't, you may have seen the ads of Elizabeth Moss, you, whom you may know from Mad Men, in her red gown and red cloak and her, her bonnet that she wears that cuts off her view of the rest of the world. The show needs to have the right costumes to work, and it absolutely does, and that's because of Anne, and that's why I wanted to have her in, and we're going to talk about some really fascinating stuff, so I hope you stick around. Anne, thank you for coming by. You are so welcome. I want to start, I guess, with, uh, I feel like critics like myself, we often know a lot about like writing and direction, and we probably know a little bit about cinematography and editing. We don't tend to talk a lot about design elements like set design, costume design, makeup design. What, like, if you were going to ex- explain your job and, and, like, to us, like, what we get wrong about it if we're talking about something, what's something that you think people who write about film and TV often get wrong about, like, how costume design works? That is an amazing question. And I think I'm from a really small town okay. in Kentucky, and I have parents who do not do this for a living yeah. and family members, and none of them. And so I, uh, I constantly answer that question, I think, <laughs> yeah. uh, in layman's terms. So what do they get wrong? I don't know what they get wrong. Um, but I think that when you think of the two words, costume designer, you think of someone fancy. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I am not. And uh, someone who wants to talk about fabric the whole time mm-hmm. and make you fall asleep. Okay. And um, someone who is quite precious and wants to... I don't know, talk about theory, color theory. While all those things are quite interesting, that is nothing that I want to do. <laughs> so I think what they get wrong is that there's sort of a one-way path to right. being a costume designer. There's a myriad of ways, and I am that creature who okay. did it the wrong way probably. Hmm. <laughs> uh, just just for the listeners at home, I, I, Anne is here and she's in overalls and, and you're— <laughs> And a tie, and a tie. Todd. It's very, and she came with a very <laughs> lovely hat. Uh, I, I, I am in a t-shirt and jeans. That is why I am not <laughs> a costume designer. Um, well, tell me about, tell me about your path. Tell me how you got to this job because that is fascinating to me. Sure. So I, um, where should I start from the womb? I'm just kidding. I, uh, I'm trying to think of the most interesting bits, but um, you know, when you're in Kentucky, mm. uh, you are basically surrounded by nature as a creative impetus. I spent a lot of time alone, um, a lot of time emulating my older brother, hence Thai overalls. Um, and I I think, you know, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in a moment when TV and film were quite beautiful mm. and quite inspiring, uh, especially if you didn't get a whole heck of a lot of films. Um, I can say that one of the shows I've worked on uh, called Westworld, yeah is one that I saw many times. Um, It came out when I was nine, and Mm. my elder brother was 11, and I remember being absolutely infatuated with uh, Yul Brynner. Mm. And also just this idea that there was this whole other world outside that looked very Americana, and yet it was really dark. And um, 
I think my mind was always elsewhere. I was a weirdo in that uh, I had parents who were not from the same culture or race. And um, my parents' friends would sort of say, you need to take her to opera. Mm. Um, and it's and I love opera, but it's not like I knew I wanted that. I, I just had a really sort of weird, wickedly lucky path to be mm. such a kind of strange uh, bird right. in the South Midwest. And so from, from a young age, I met this museum director mm. in a small town, bigger town than Henderson, Kentucky, where I was born, not born, where I was raised. Um, and he took me to New York uh, with a very good friend of mine, and we were young. We were 15. So wow. while others were going to like— um, where in Florida for spring break, we said, we're going to New York. And I tried to stay, but I was young. That was a really seminal trip uh, because I actually saw, thanks to John Streetman, this museum director, um, Diana Vreeland, who was not a costume designer, but she was a beautiful creator of worlds, is all I can say if she had a moniker. And that is, she was from Harper's Bazaar Mm. at a time when rare birds that were so exotic in their thinking weren't around. So she really stood out. Anyway, cut to 1983, perhaps, I'm trying to remember, um, or or before, and John Streetman showed me this exhibition on uh, TV costumes. Okay. And it kind of blew my mind that someone actually had that as a job, you know. So, um, yeah, that was sort of the initial idea of that. And then I... um, I spent a lot of time at the $2 cinema, like paying one price and sneaking and staying there all day. Right. And of course, while it was Jason and the Argonauts yeah. <laughs> over and over and over, or uh, I don't remember what else, um, there was always a notion that, of course, I was interested in the story, but there was something about the clothes. And, and it, I, I, to this day, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, like, I wanted to be Fellini is what I want to say. And I think I didn't want to be a costume designer, but I think I had a predilection mm-hmm. to it, for it, you right. know? Right, well, Maybe talk, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the job itself. Because okay. you're, um, you're currently on, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of shows. Obviously, we'll get into some of them. But you're currently on two Really popular shows, really hot shows of the moment. You mentioned Westworld. You're also working on uh, Hulu's Handmaid's Tale. Uh, And both of those shows are very costume heavy, but in very different ways. And I want you to tell me, like, how do you approach when you start on a show like, say, Handmaid's, where there is this one, like, central costume that's so important to the whole story? What's your approach? Like, where, what's step one and step two and so on? Okay, so that one is interesting. Um, Westworld and The Handmaid's Tale were two, the only two uh, projects that I actually encountered in my past. Mm. I'm not a girl who goes to see remakes, which now I sound like an idiot, but uh, I don't because I'm right. so sad. I'm going to, I'm worried that it's not going to be as awesome as when I was a kid when I first saw it. So I actually saw the film, The Handmaid's Tale film in New York, you know, 1990. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so moved in a very deep way. It was hugely impactful. And then I read the book, mm-hmm. and that was hugely impactful. And so when I got called to do this project, I, of course, started reading it right away, borrowed my kind of little sister's book, and uh, started looking for images online for the film. And then I kind of had to let it go because right. I did not want to remake the novel 
word for word, visually, and I did not want to remake the film that was already done. And so it also can really mess with your mind because you're studying and memorizing three scripts at once. If you throw in a novel, you're kind of fucked, right? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> can't do that. So I, um, when I threw that away, you know, back to my childhood, I was raised— uh, Episcopalian, if you sure. know what that is, sure. in the church, uh, from my father's side. Okay. Loved it, was an altar boy, the whole thing. Spent a lot of time in the church. Uh, but also, my mother never really talked about Buddhism. Mm. She, because we were in Kentucky, and probably she shouldn't have. Mm. Uh, but I remember like, going to pray and talk to trees and uh, these other things right. that are Buddhist and Shinto in nature. So I kind of threw both of those things as visual starting points into this world of The Handmaid's Tale, even though it takes place in, you know, New England um, at a certain time, I knew that I wanted all sorts of religious icons, mm -hmm. iconographies, yeah. <laughs> uh, peppered in, yeah. and I didn't want it to be one thing. I didn't want it to be just Christian or just whatever. So honestly, I started looking at a myriad of different religions right. where they— control women. Mm. Um, and then from there, I branched out into more sort of nature, not religions, but theories like yeah. Shinto. And I even, you know, of course, being a costume designer, you can't help but look at different uh, decades through history right. that stand out that are quite timeless to make the piece look like it could be any time. Yeah. In the future, but also with remnants of kind of archaic society attached. Um, but I, I have said, I even looked at like Japanese pearl divers. Mm. I looked at um, the Chinese communist uniforms, uh, any, any sort of society where people dress the same, mm. which isn't, isn't where we're at today in 2017. Um, I started, I, I kind of flooded my brain with those images. Right. Uh, yeah, I looked yeah. at a lot of paintings. Like it could be anywhere. Yeah, my brain. I, I had a chance to talk with Elizabeth Moss, uh, the star oh. of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, who I guess worked very closely with you on finding yes. that costume. What's the process like? Of okay, now we have an actor here, and we have to make sure the clothes not just fit on them, but like look good on them on camera. Right. So I didn't want it to really look good. Mm, yeah, uh, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but cinematically, you mean? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. So. So with TV, your uh, scope of time is really foreshortened sure. in terms of what you have to kind of just vomit out of your brain mm. so fast. Mm -hmm. And you have to go with your gut because you don't have time for anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, Gilead, the world that we built, was so huge that I knew I wanted to start with Lizzie's character, mm -hmm. with Elizabeth Moss' character, uh, Alfred. I knew from many conversations with her that you know, she had to be in it the whole time. Yeah. And it is inhibiting in a good way. I knew I wanted to push that to mm -hmm. help her. She's a quite physical girl. Mm -hmm. um, she's she's so intricate yeah. <laughs> in the real estate of her face, her body, and how she uses them are very interesting. So I wanted to be able to give her that freedom while still controlling her right. as maybe a religious leader might, right? right? Mm -hmm. In giving her this kind of, prison garb to wear every day, mm -hmm. shackled. And so, and yet, mm -hmm. as an actor who has to be in those clothes, not even 16 hours a day, but 18 to 20, 
I didn't want her to hate me or to hate the dress <laughs> or, you know, it's, I mean, it, listen, it's real. When the actors are like, I can't do this. Yeah. I can't, that would be suicide for me because there would be a hundred of those handmaids, yeah. right? So we had many discussions. I met her in New York with maybe five to six dresses that yeah. were different. Mm -hmm. And I just had her walk, you know, I sort of cleaned out furniture from a room so I could film her moving, mm -hmm. not just walking, but swirling or kneeling or yeah. things that you see in the show um it was very fluid and the thing that she wanted was something that was comfortable the thing that i wanted also was a very sort of painterly swaying mm. of movement that was feminine but not sexual right and i wanted something that would look almost lighter than air in the way that it could move for the camera to help the dp but also to look like blood flowing when they would be in large expanses of, you know, environments or landscapes. I wanted it to be a kind of David Lynchian surreal painting of this bright green with this red flowing line of handmaids. And I think it worked. Yeah. Um, a lot more to say about that, but you might snooze under the table if I go into more <laughs> detail. But uh, she's very involved, which yeah. I appreciated. And she's quite an intelligent girl, as I'm sure you you found out. And so I just wanted to give her everything because yeah. you, it's such a collaborative effort. She's like my child, right? Oh, wow. It's yeah. like I have to make sure that she doesn't ever question that she is that person, right. that character, Alfred. Right, right. Uh, we will come back to fabric swatches and things like that in a moment. Um, because uh, I, I am, to. no, I am, I am, like, I am fascinated by this stuff. Okay. Like, I am, I am really curious about. Like, I, I am learning here too. Okay, but I do want to talk about Westworld a little bit because um, I was, I was recently listening to a different podcast. I listened to ones other than my own, uh, uh, and they were talking about the film Titanic and yes. how in Titanic. I just touched the costumes. Oh, a, really? Like half an hour, and oh, yeah. I never get excited. Yeah. But there were so many. Yes, honey. Yes. Like all the background, I was looking at all of them. And they're gorgeous costumes. But what they were talking about is how some of the the styling of that costumes, and especially the styling of like Leonardo DiCaprio's hair, yeah. is very mid-90s. And it's a way to like sort of center yourself in, okay, these people are living in 1912, but they could be me. It's sort of a yeah. way to draw you in. And everything about that movie is about making that story feel contemporary uh, in a way that sort of resonated, of course, to the tune of like $2 billion worldwide or whatever Crazy. it was. yeah. So Westworld is kind of the same thing where it's taking place in the future, but also kind of the past, but also you want to pull in elements of the present. So we're thinking about our own relationship to technology and things like that. When you are doing a, I hesitate to call it a period piece because it's not, but you know what I mean by that. I do. Like when you're doing a piece like that, how do you find ways to both keep it accurate, but also sort of give the audience windows in to say, oh yeah, that could be me. This could be who I am. You know what I do? I, th I think everybody's different. Mm -hmm. And I think your scope of what's right and wrong will be different depending on your life, mm -hmm. right, as a creative person. So what I do, because lately it sure feels like everything is dipping into the past and present at the same time. Mm -hmm. Handmaid's Tale, yeah. in terms of my research, Westworld, this new one, The Passage. What I do is separate from my research mm. of the past and separate from, I don't know, color theory and fabric swatching. <laughs> and conversation is a whole kind of uh, delving into my day-to-day -day life, mm. present time, uh, to see what kind of politics are at play. What am I passionate about, for or against? 
how does my reality uh, inform what I'm doing? Because right. my reality is I'm multiracial. I'm a tomboy. Mm-hmm. I'm from the South Midwest. I mean, a lot of those things do not usually equal costume designer 2017. But what I think is cool and maybe egotistical, Todd, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> is I want to kind of visually inspire kids like me, you know, yeah. in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky or South Dakota, that that feel a resonance with the the end result of the visual. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, how many things can you throw into one frame? Well, a lot. Yeah. And um, so how I, how I do that is I just kind of check in with, you know, I read the script sort of five times and then I go back and say, well, wh- how are you feeling about this scene? Yeah. And when you do that, you know, in Westworld where there's a gazillion people, you feel kind of twisted, but it's helpful. Mm-hmm. It's helpful. And, um, is that what you asked me? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It, <laughs> I can't believe it. I've I, just gone on forever. <laughs> yeah, I am thinking about like 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 that as a thing. Like especially as we are, like you say, doing more stories about the past and the present and yes, the future, sir. and sort of the Venn diagram intersections between those places. Like finding a window into that. Um, another show that you worked on uh, have you've worked on many stories from the past, but you, like like Mad Men, you were you were involved there for a bit. No. Oh, okay. <gasps> no, but that's Lizzie's show. You oh. know what? It uh, it's okay because even my dad. You <laughs> you just this is so weird. This is like Mad Men is always in my life. Mm-hmm. Lizzie did Mad Men obviously forever. Right. So many people have worked with me on that show. My dad, Charles <laughs> Crabtree in Kentucky, is always when I come home. He just can't let it go. Like that's his show. Right. Loved it. Even recently told me, and he's always like, "Why couldn't you have done that, Mad Men?" <laughs> <laughs> and I just sat next to John Hamm. I did Masters of Sex. Masters of which Sex. Which is the same go. time frame, yes. but whole different uh, job. It wasn't okay. advertising. It was the medical profession sure. and actually sexual mm-hmm. history. But that's another show that is discreetly set in the past. Yes, and sir. Yet, how, like, how do you approach a question like that? Of Do you worry about accuracy as much as you do? Just like, uh, I see where you're yeah, going. Yeah, you know, it's just like finding... As finding like, because one of the things I th- I liked about that show is that it it always reminded you what they're going through is what <clears throat> what you're going through right now. You know, like yeah, it's like true. Nothing's changed, yeah. Bubby. Nothing's yeah. changed. Okay, so, <laughs> like we still have the same problems. Is there a way in the visual elements to, I guess, enhance enhance the escapism of like a period piece, but also remind people, yeah, nothing's changed. Yeah, and you know what that is? It's um. How do I always approach that? Of course, casting helps. Like mm-hmm. looking at an actor that might have a classic face, like Lizzie's face, is she could play any period, but she's so inherently modern mm-hmm. and kind of every woman, if you look at her face, she could be a kind of Meryl Streep, you know, for the future. Um, how I do it is I play with stuff. So if you, you know, Picasso, I'm not right. saying I'm him. But I love him. And he started out painting so classically. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't even recognize when he was a student, you know, even sort of every 10 years. But you have to start with creating reality or else who the hell is going to want to be engaged? You have to know that that scene is actually happening so that you're not sitting there going, oh, what a beautiful 1950s piece. (laughs) It sure was pretty back then. Like, I would hate that. I want them to people to feel pathos when they look at the clothes. I don't even want them to look at the clothing, to be honest with you. Mm. I want them to feel an emotional charge. Mm -hmm. And so you start with being a beautiful life-drawing artist, right? 
-hmm. favorite kind of class is life drawing because you're just drawing what's in front of you. You're drawing the reality. But then you fuck with it a little bit. And the way that you do that is actually to take the frame and set it on edge. And, And in that way, you're throwing in abstractionism, right? Or you're throwing in a kind of surrealism or whatever it is, whatever take feels right for the moment. And sometimes I'm playing on... A song that's really current, that's in my brain, that could influence me via color Mm. or via, you know, for Masters of Sex, Lizzie Kaplan's uh, character, Virginia Johnson, is a woman in that time who's quite liberal and actually very highly uh, not trusted by most because she's a divorcee. She wants an education. She wants to be a doctor. So what I did with her was to play with her fabrics and use men's suiting in her dresses, which actually wasn't done back then. I'm sure it was done a little bit. I don't know, like the only one. But I thought, well, that way she'll feel like she's in a men's world, but Mm -hmm. she's competing with Michael Sheen, you know. You just play, but you tweak little things. But honestly, it's probably just for emotional response. Right, right. I don't know. When we talk about costume design, we often talk about women's. Yeah, Dress, true. Women's dresses, women's gowns, or just how the women are dressed. It's funny. Tell me about designing for men. Like what costume I would love designing for men. To. Yeah. I would love to. And I think it's because I am a straight girl who loves to wear men's clothes. Mm. I think they're made better. Mm. Uh, the quality, the workmanship is still old school. You know, men's hats are better. Men's shoes are better. Overalls are better. It's, you know, every little thing is not a thing. It's in the tiny details of the clothing. And so, of course, part of that is growing up where I grew up and wearing my my older brother's clothing. But I, I feel that it's always overlooked. It's so funny that you say that. And so let's talk about, you know, um, Masters of Sex and Westworld and, and A Handmaid's Tale. All of those moments, the men were equally as important. Um, the women are getting quite a lot of play on The Handmaid's Tale. And mm-hmm. certainly, you know, Westworld had a spin mm-hmm. and turned into this uh, beautiful storyline that changed for Evan Rachel Wood and Tandy Newton. But the the Western clothing of Westworld was such a pleasure and right. a dream to research and get right. Um, they don't make men like that anymore. You know, yeah. I want men like that <laughs> in mm. my life and to be inspired by them. I even want to dress like them. You mm. know, there's something about that. It's the romanticism of a way of life that doesn't occur anymore because people, and I sound like fucking Joseph Fines, you know, in conversations that we've had about the commander in Handmaid's Tale. But I know that the gents felt it on Westworld as well. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Simpson, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, all of a sudden, I'm forgetting his character's name, but this happens on every job. I forget their names. Well, they kind of they kind of kept his character like oh God. William, right? Yeah, William. Thank mm-hmm. you. And so, all of us talked about this way of wearing clothes that is a nod to the past, but it makes you feel kind of randy. It makes you feel like you're more in control. It makes you feel like you're actually way more interesting. Yeah. And Jimmy Simpson's father told me, told him, he told me. That he was like, he never talks about the clothing he wears on anything. And he was like, hey, you, you actually look really good in Westworld. Mm. You know, his dad. Yeah. Which I just think, I think that's why Mad Men was so popular. I think that's why Masters of Sex was so popular. I think people want to be fucking cowboys. Who doesn't, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to be these adventurers. And the clothing that goes within that is something very genteel. Mm-hmm. And it 
it speaks to a different kind of dude, man, like a gentleman, a learned man, a scholar, a person who believes in things rather than people who all look the same. Mm. So I sort of throw that romanticism in the clothing, and I love it when people ask me about the men's stuff because you don't often see it so much here in the States. I mean, there's certain bespoke type, you know, young gents, like say in Brooklyn, that are bringing it back. Uh, Certainly in London, for sure in Tokyo, there's a whole like, you know, fast movement to grab everything Americana from Mm -hmm. like the 20s to now. But I love that. I love it that the men are kind of getting on the on the game and uh, getting in the game and kind of being up there with women. I don't know why women that we only talk about women with costume designs. Mm. I think because everybody wants to fucking talk about a frock. I mean, how how boring, right? <laughs> like I, it only goes so far. Yeah, you're going to be pretty, sexy, interesting. You hope you know, but it's. Uh, I, I think I like subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, on these shows, clothes are a method of character development, especially in a show like Westworld, where literally clothes are like a deep clue to who the character actually is. Or not. Yeah, or not. Or to kind of take you off course. Do you feel like you can—I don't want you to psychoanalyze my t-shirt and jeans, but do you feel like when you're just (laughs) walking around, like, seeing people and how they're dressed, do you feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of—I have a sense of who that person is? Not really. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what's funny? I probably thought I did as a kid Mm -hmm. growing up in the Midwest where everybody kind of, you know, lovingly dresses the same. I mean, shoot, they don't even get all the stories that we get. I don't do that. I, I, You know what's funny? The moment that I realized I kind of took my blinders off visually Mm -hmm. and looked at people for real is because of film. Because Mm -hmm. I was working, you know, I ran away as a young punk from the South Midwest to first England, then New York. So, of course, my visually, I went crazy because it was a really amazing time to be outside of London and in New York in 1985. It was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there was such a disparity in the streets that was really exciting to me anyway in the club scene. And I worked as a fashion stylist first, but what that does, it is an amazing thing. And perhaps it's different now for many, but I found that my blinders were on. When walking down the street, it would only go to certain people that seemed really, you know, exciting to me, right. which is a, such a shame. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then as soon as I started getting into film, I literally felt the shift the next day. Yeah. That because I had to look at people, all kinds of people, homeless people, rich folks, whomever, folks from Queens, like whatever it was, I had to really study them. But I don't think I look at them and say, oh, you're this. Yeah. I think I'm always, like I used to sketch on the subway mm. and in diners and people used to make fun of me. Like I didn't want to take their picture because I didn't want to embarrass myself or them. But I remember someone saying, well, it's worse, Anne, because you're sketching them and they can yeah. see that you're sketching them. Yeah. And it's kind of fucked up. Mm. So I don't do that anymore. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm just yeah. always looking. That's not what you asked me. I'm realizing now. No, that's, but. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love your yellow shirt. It's bright yellow. It's awesome. Yeah. It's bold, you know. Uh, my wife picked it out. You see? <laughs> you see that? 
we're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of Pixar's movies, you know, things like Toy Story, WALL-E, The Incredibles. I just think they're great. But with absolutely everything changing about the way we consume culture, the way fandom works is changing too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. Ross has dedicated his career to marketing and innovation in entertainment, named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, and a three-time Emmy winner to boot. Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands and shows that you love. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we are going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape. Musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you are listening to this show. Sort of pivoting off a, a thing about Westworld is, again, the costumes were real clues there. Those showrunners to me felt like they had everything kind of mapped out in their heads, and but they were there, they were holding all the keys. When they would they tell you like this costume needs to look like this, but I can't tell you why, or did they sort of key you into like that whole plan of that first season, which was so elaborately constructed? I think I can say, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the first season I'm, is over. I'm no so. longer on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that show. I fall in love with every show I do. Right. Um, and I love Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy, this husband and wife that created that show. They are quite intelligent folks mm-hmm. and brilliant writers. But even more than that, their minds are so expansive. It's just shocking to me that this couple came together and exploded, you know, this amazing show out of their minds. Yeah. Um, it's it's twofold. They couldn't tell me everything. Mm-hmm. Um they are quite secretive, as well as J.J. Abrams. So I knew that. Um, and yet I started going down some wrong paths when right. I started sketching or designing. And there was a moment when um, I got called to the office, yeah. uh, which is always a good thing with them. Yeah. And Lisa Joy sat myself down, uh, the production designer, and uh, one of the creative producers, just the three of us. And we couldn't take notes and we couldn't write anything down or on our computers. And she told us all the kind of uh, connecting through lines, perhaps not all of them. And I had to memorize it. And that's really a feat because while I have a crazy memory for many things, I have a bad short-term memory. So I was Mm. always petrified that I would forget. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone on my crew Mm. or the actors, obviously. And I think what they did was kind of this incredible social experiment. Um... But I'm happy that they told me, because I could have gotten it wrong, uh, and that they trusted me, you know, to hold that information sacred, because it did work. It did work in terms of the acting, in terms of people not knowing. I guess there were, like, so many theories out there on um, Reddit or whatever. But, yeah, they they told me, and then also they wouldn't tell me everything. For instance, uh, when certain actors would get hired— I'm trying to remember maybe Tessa Thompson, yeah. like later. Um, they couldn't tell me. But it 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 did lead to some crazy conversations on set with the actors, aka Jimmy, yeah. in the middle of Utah saying, What the hell, man? Yeah. Like, why are we changing this? 
you know, secretly sewing a jacket in the middle of nowhere in a motel in Utah and saying at, you know, 4 a.m., you got to put this on, brother. Don't ask me any questions. (laughs) It worked out. It worked out. It did. It did indeed. (laughs) Uh, I'm always curious. I'm sort of curious about this. Uh, Obviously, if it's a really central role, a lot of the time that costume is going to be designed, even built from the ground up. But when it's like waiter number three, you know? Yeah. Yeah. how much of your job is just like finding the right piece in like the the sh- studio shop or sure. you know a store somewhere and how much of it is actually drawing designing making clothes it's all of that todd and i man there are days i wake up and i i wish i could just say let me go out and just fucking find it and yeah. like make everybody's day shorter and their worries less mm. right but my brain it's it's like having a i call it designers Tourette's like I cannot think a certain way as Mm. much as I've tried and I've done this for now like 28 years so it ain't changing but I I love like going to Fox costume just now I haven't been in a costume house in years Mm. because the shows that I have been on have been mainly about making everything yeah and I'm talking 90 to 95 percent I prefer that because if you're painting a painting and you only have five colors and you're meant to create something over here in the corner, it's way better to create it, mm-hmm. mixing the colors that you have rather than trying to find it and stick it up on the corner, right? It's yeah. never going to be exactly what's in your mind. It's about control, really. It's about, you know, you need it to be a certain thing, even if it's a waiter number three. There's something really curious about that waiter number three. What is it? Mm. Maybe he is a genius. Maybe he's dyslexic. Maybe he uh, has always tied his shoes a different way. Like, I always like to find all those little teeny things, especially in the people that have to dress the same, like waiters. Um, And I think it's, believe it or not, it's sort of misplaced empathy and compassion for those people. And usually it's workers that I find I have that for, whether they're sex workers or waiters or people on farms, like migrant farmers, you know, it's like, how can I make them more special without changing the story or making you actually look? But I like it when myself or someone in the audience notices waiter number three Mm. because maybe they connect with that person you know it's easy to connect with someone who's saying all the lines in in the front of the frame (laughs) to me this is this is an interesting sort of line of inquiry maybe because you are drawn it seems to me to political stories in some ways westworld is very political hemi's tale is incredibly especially (laughs) at the era we live in right now (laughs) incredibly political is that is that something you look for or is it just something that sort of you keep accidentally falling into it's really funny. I, I think it's everything. That seems to be my pet answer. It's really boring. You can guys can just shut off the radio now or whatever. How, radio, see? Old school. Yeah. Computers, you don't have to listen anymore because I'll say the same thing. I think I've been really lucky for being such a newbie when I came to California. I worked in New York first. I kept landing these incredible scripts. Yeah. And for a while, it kind of didn't pay off because mm. people were doing like, blockbuster films like I don't even know what because I haven't done them but nobody was doing uh, excellent TV mm-hmm. stories when yeah. I started here um, and I worked with the best I worked with Michael Mann down the road in fact saw his office as I pulled up to yours and um, I got really used to great thinkers and mm-hmm. so 
Do I hope for that? Heck yeah. You know, like who doesn't? If you're going to spend 20 hours a day, Mm -hmm. literally six days a week, I try not to work on the seventh day, not because the Sabbath, but to clear my fucking head. I feel like if you're going to do that, if you're really lucky, the work you do should matter to you. Yeah. Um, Or else you might as well work in a factory like my parents who worked so hard Mm -hmm. and... Maybe they had really good days, but I have it so much easier than them. And I feel like, yeah, I, you know, do I look for political stories? I can't be in this body without feeling political in some way or the other. Yeah. And, you know, it's great therapy, man. <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. You could just do your work and get out everything, all the angst yeah. Yeah. in your work. Uh, so I've been lucky, I guess, is the answer. Oh, great, great. Maybe. But you were on Rectify for a little bit, right? I was. I'm so glad you said that. And I love that show. And it's one of the few shows to me that captured, we were connecting before recording about how I'm from South Dakota and you were born there, but then grew up in Kentucky. It's one of the few shows that I think captures rural America, not as like a place to escape. Because most of the people who wind up in Hollywood or New York from rural America desperately wanted to get out of there. Oh, heck yeah. As I did. Yeah, all of us. But- like there are things, there are good things about those places that keep people there, that keep people living there and having families there and things like that. I'm wondering like what sticks with you about your rural upbringing, maybe what you brought to Rectify, maybe not, but just like about that world that still informs how you work today. Wow. I, that is A, a brilliant question, and B, I'm so quietly screaming for joy inside that you mentioned Rectify because there's two seminal moments in my career. I I was that kid that ran away from Mm. Kentucky. I don't even think I even told anybody in New York the first year that Mm. I was from Kentucky because I was so worried about being judged for that. Later on, it became cool. But uh, Justified was a show set in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I researched I was, I'm not going to say I'm from there because I didn't grow up in Appalachia, but I certainly have Appalachian uh, family members mm-hmm. who may or may not want to accept that I'm related to them. That's okay. But I fell in love with Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And um, so Justified was awesome for that for me. And I fucking went there to look at it again. There was such a responsibility to get it right mm-hmm. and not have the typical cliche versions of Kentucky. And then when I got to Georgia, I always talk about Rectify because it, it's one of those shows that stays with you. The writing is beautiful. Um, Ray McKinnon is from Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, he's from the place where the sweet onions are from. Valdosta, maybe? Vidalia? Yes. Yes. Valdosta is the university. Yes. Vidalia onions. (laughs) That's it. Um, and I feel like in my interview with him, I knew he was from Georgia, but I was I had a kind of shadowy veil mm-hmm. over my face because I I was kind of a not southern hater, but a kind of I felt like a fraud when right. I met Ray. And I knew that he wanted to tell these southern gothic beautiful stories of Americana. And you know, for the first episode, I was like, "Oh no, he's going to find out. He's mm-hmm. going to find out that I fucking had a bad childhood in the south mm-hmm. and that I ran and I'm a fraud." And I had to keep promising him that I would tell the truth in the clothing. Yeah. And that, and I didn't promise him that I would celebrate it because uh, I didn't want to be a liar. But I knew that I was going to fall in love with the South all over again, which I did. And it was so cool because we shot in these tiny, beautiful towns in Georgia. Um, 
that you've seen throughout Rectify. I even went early. I, I, I looked on a map and I saw the name Zebulon, mm. which is an amazing name. And it's from Zebulon Pike. Yeah. Okay. From Pike's Peak. And I said, I want to live there because it's fucking awesome. And it's an old biblical name. I don't want to live in the same town with everybody else because it'll mm. be modern. And I fucking moved to Zebulon. A town of less than a thousand, mm. maybe even less than a hundred. I don't want to get it wrong. But uh, I found an old house. We had our costume shop there mm. and I lived upstairs and I was never happier. Mm. I adopted a dog from Georgia named Georgia and I'm driving to Georgia on Friday for another job. Yeah. And it, it just does something. It, uh, it's like taking this elixir that you don't remember that you love. Mm. from your childhood. It's like It's like, I don't know, your first banana split or like your first cherry pie and like how you remember everything yeah. the heat of the cherry pie the aroma the smell the bees buzzing because you're eating outside that's rectified for me it's insane yeah. how it gets in your veins and that can't help but translate into the clothing mm. it's not i didn't want to tell any lies i didn't want to act like it was more idyllic right. than it was but i also didn't want to have like country bumpkins sitting in overalls even though they are real uh on a porch yeah. you know and um i love ray and i love everybody in that show i still talk to some of the actors abigail yeah. and aiden and um and jay and i you know you just have a sense of responsibility and what's beautiful is for the most part when a script is so intellectually right on and touches a nerve, a poignant heart nerve, you find a collective consciousness in mm. the crew and the cast. It's it's really, you can feel it as soon as it starts. Rectify was that. Westworld was that. Handmaid's Tale was that. It, I've been, Luck, the HBO amazing show I did with Milch and Man. Beautiful, yeah. Beautiful right? Mm -hmm. And they're lasting images and they're lasting emotions and... I'm I'm lucky, mm. you know. Mm. Like, how did I get here? I'm really serious. <laughs> Talking to you, Todd. Luck and <laughs> luck and rectify some of your film work. It's very present day, very realistic, very yes, grounded. Sir. You know, people aren't going to wear flashy, outwardly flashy things. What is that more challenging in some ways than I guess you'd say uh, designing a, a a period piece or a fantasy or sci-fi type thing? Is re is doing reality. something really realistic? Yeah. More challenging? I would say Pat answers yes, but mm -hmm. I love uber reality because I come from that. Mm -hmm. So my craving is always to do uber reality, even if it's a fantasy piece. Or my craving is always to find the reality, whatever isn't 100% real. So it is more challenging because there's an oath that you take, right, right? Uh, creatively to get it right, but also to move people. Mm. You know, I, my favorite um, genre are documentaries, which never need me. They never need <laughs> costume designers, but it's what I love and what I want to do. And I always want to have people react to my costumes as if they're watching a documentary. Okay. Kind of, mm. you know, yeah. Yeah. for yeah. the most part. That's interesting. What did you sort of learn about growing up in Kentucky from working on Justified? Like the only show I can oh, think of set in Kentucky. Yeah. Can I tell you something? It's going to sound really horrible, mm. but I think it's good. Okay. I was petrified for a lot of the time designing that show mm. because I encountered a lot of racism mm. growing up, like physical racism. And uh, <laughs> like, why am I going here? But I think it no, informs please. what I do. Sure. Uh, not that you have to be 
terrified to do your work creatively. But, you know, I grew up with an Okinawan mother and mm-hmm. my brother. My my dad was overseas in the military. So we were the only brown people, like, in yeah. the projects of Kentucky. And there's some really insane things that happened to us. I mean, like, going to get gasoline, you know, guns pulled on us more than once just yeah. to get gas. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. And then researching that sort of opened up a whole trunk of really kind of bizarro memories that lightly are very surreal because kids take everything such a different way. Mm-hmm. I was sort of think about the two Davids, David Lynch and David Byrne, mm. for my upbringing in Kentucky. It was very that as a kid. Like, I didn't know that different, you know? But somehow things translated very bizarrely. Even having a mother, like, trying to make crazy-ass Betty Crocker things. Betty Crocker? No. Betty Crocker, yeah. Is that the cookbook? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, sad that I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> she studied that, like the Bible. Mm. I mean, who does that? Mm. And so, you know, I, I remember saying this on Justified. Also really adored that cast. And Graham Yost. Yeah. I still love—I just wrote to him yesterday to say I miss him so much and his energy. Like, I, th- I think— there was a definite palpable fear that I had when yeah. I would do, like, the bad guys on that show. Yeah. Because I remember them. I fucking experienced them as a kid. And even, you know, I, I look the way I look, but even my younger brother, Sean, and I, not even five years ago, we loved to go to the little towns in Kentucky and look and look at, like, Edgar Casey's grave, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, in this <laughs> tiny— Cemetery. I love cemeteries. And we went to this, um, I won't name it, but we went to this burger stand that's mm-hmm. actually owned by a friend that I graduated with in a different town, right. but a family-owned burger stand. And the woman, who's not my color, mm. older, maybe the grandma of the place, like, went in the back. She refused to serve me and my brother. Mm. Five years ago, brother. Mm. And uh, that was like, whoa, whoa, everything I studied was really real. It hasn't changed, you know, like. Sure, it's changed a little, yeah. you know, but it's um, it's very interesting. It is not horrifying anymore. Certainly, it helps fuel me in other ways politically for the yeah. work I do. But what it tells me is, is I've changed. Like, the material's still the same. The painting's still the same. Like, I've walked away from it, and I can look at it in a different way and actually fucking throw it into my work. Yeah. You know? Mm. But the cool thing is is knowing that I'm not reactionary. (laughs) That actually, that shit goes down every day. And it just gives me a kind of simpatico or or empathetic feeling when I'm dressing characters that undergo those things, you know, even on the flip side. Yeah. You know, and um, with Justified, I remember I went to Appalachia, and I went to Appalachia again because of uh, Robert Kirkman. Right. Is from Kentucky. He yeah. does The Walking Dead, and I did Outcast, this this uh, sure, sure, pilot yeah. for him. Mm-hmm. And I told him, like, man, I was so excited to go. I needed to go to Appalachia again to get, like, a infusion again. Because, again, like, I wanted that place. It's called Rome, yeah. uh, Outcast. But I just have a need for it to be right, right. on every level for me if I see it. But yeah. also for people watching I don't want someone from Kentucky or Appalachia or wherever, South Dakota, to say, mm. Mm, some Hollywood girl did that. Mm. You know? I yeah. would hate, it would kill me, actually. So, yeah. 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 Uh, one thing uh, 
uh, one thing that I think as we've been having these conversations about rural America since the election, especially. Yes, sir. Is we tend to think of it as this monolithic white place. Yes, it's not. Certainly it's majority white, <laughs> but there are people of color in oh, rural yeah. America. And I'm wondering if like you've spoken a little bit to your experience of that, but when you think about that environment and growing up in that environment and, and like your mother's experiences there, like what sort of what are, how is that experience, um, how do those two elements of your identity intersect in a way that sort of creates how you see the world, I guess? Whoa, that's big. I know. Can I lie or giant, tell the truth? <laughs> no, uh, maybe, maybe, more, maybe more specifically like how how it impacts your work, especially on these shows like Rectify or, or Justify. Yeah, that go back you know to what it world. is? Like, Hey, I'm just living this life, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like whatever happened to me as a kid is just like a byproduct of looking like this in this encasement that I was born in, right? right? Nobody's fault. Like that's just how I look. Mm. But it seems to get it seems to cause a rise in people <laughs> of certain backgrounds. It's a okay with me, brother. You know, it's like whatever. Yeah. But what I think is when I go in for a job. And I'm just being me. Like, I'm not trying to get over or try to have a spin or whatever it is. Like, who has time for that? I'm just giving you as the show's writer, the show's creator or the director, my take on how I've reacted to your script and your plan. And what I try to tell them is, or I don't even try to tell them. I think this is what happens. This is why I get hired in a different way than the next person. Sure. Uh, there's not a lot of people that look like me that have this Southern Midwestern experience. Mm. And what I used to find um, fault with or what I used to be embarrassed about is actually a really huge help Mm. for these scripts. And so, you know, you're asking me, how does it, uh, how do I react? How do I? Do you you find ways that that, obviously it's going to filter through how you see the everywhere, world. But, yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> like there's not even a minute in the day where it's not. And I, and I, I don't wake up and set up out to be that person. Right. And certainly there are people of every shade mm-hmm. and race and culture and creed that might say to me, you know, Anne, like mm-hmm. people actually don't know what you are. So what are you worried about? And I'm like, that ain't, that is not the answer, you know? And it's cool to be kind of gray, but it's also quite infuriating. So I just have learned at 53 almost to just let it be. Mm. Let it be like the the ice cream flavor you've never tried. (laughs) That's cool now because it's different. You know, it's like I will always see through these eyes and I will always feel through this heart. And I used to be quite embarrassed by it. Like, Mm -hmm. why can't I just make a green dress like the next person? Like, Mm -hmm. why can't I Mm. make something pretty? Of course I can. It's easy. I guess um, I sound like a basket case, right? I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to the grocery store and I'm thinking 20 things about the people around (laughs) me. I'm not. I love life and I love people and I love people of all shades. Like I am, I did my DNA and I'm actually everything except for uh, Latina, Mm. which is shocking. Mm -hmm. Like everything down to gypsy, Roma, like Mm -hmm. all of it. So I'm like, well, fuck, that's why, you know, like that's why nobody can kind of pin it, you know, Mm -hmm. what I am. But also I'm going to use that in the work Mm. because there's, there has to be some weird reason. Yeah. Why I was born like this, you know? <laughs> like, seriously, think about it. Like, you must throw everything from your 
childhood and your life experience into this work. Yeah. You have to. You have to be a humanist and someone who understands people. Oh, and, sure. you know, you have to—your voice itself just can resonate in a certain way that's different because of where you're from, you know? I'm going to ask a question that maybe you'll say, well, the answer to that you just is— switched, You just switched it on me, Todd. <laughs> Go ahead. I saw you. <laughs> no. I'm going to ask you a question that's just very much like— the answer is maybe as basic as it seems to be, and you can say, what a dumb okay. question if you want. But I'll, I'll be honest. When you are working on a pilot versus working on a full series versus working on a film, like what is the difference there? Like, oh, what's, man. What's the level of difference in, in doing that? So the difference is always time, mm-hmm. right? There's always that thing that like the sands yeah. are, are like going through quicker than you want on a pilot. Mm. It is something that having just finished the handmaid's tale in toronto in february mm. came home and did loads of promo stuff press for mm-hmm. hulu i mean i haven't stopped working yeah. right and i heard about this pilot in georgia the passage which is another building of a dystopian world at a very fast pace mm. for an amazing company really scott's company so you know they're going to want like a number one work yeah it's it's daunting, man. Mm. Like, I almost didn't take it because I thought, do I need to take a minute into nature and not do this for a second mm-hmm. to be really fresh and, like, clean and zen and, like, give them a thousand percent? Mm-hmm. So the the pilot thing is daunting because it's like being a thoroughbred yeah. horse. It's like, you know you got to fucking win that race. And so you better have the cojones to do it. And it's really all mental. It's It's, you know, I tell anybody who comes on, To work with me, like, you really have to figure out what it is that gives you the utmost energy, Mm -hmm. and you have to be so in tune with yourself. I mean, this is is a lot. Can you imagine telling this to somebody who just wants a job? Mm. Uh, But it's true. You have to have taken your confidence, you know, vittles, vitamins in the morning so that you are so in tune with your gut. Because that's all you have to go on. you Mm got to make decisions so quickly. For me, as a costume designer, I do not have time to make a wrong move and or question myself. So that happens on a pilot because it has to get to screen so quick. I mean, to camera. But the same thing does happen on a series and on a film. It's film you have the most luxurious amount of time. But because our world is rapidly moving at such a fast pace and we are all you know, consumed with doing 20 things at once, they give you less and less time because Mm -hmm. this is just our world. But still, film gives you more prep time, research time, sketching time, conversations with what should this world of Gilead look like, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You get less time on a series Mm -hmm. because it's TV Mm -hmm. and you have to film so much more. Uh, on Westworld and uh, Handmaid's Tale, we were doing three to five episodes at once. Yeah. It's very difficult to keep all that in your brain I'm straight, sure. yeah. let alone the amount of clothing that has to be made, mm-hmm. you know, on a daily basis to be able to film all that different sets. So if you just think about that fast pace on a series and then apply it to a pilot, it's basically getting sort of a quarter to a sixteenth less of time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Every day in your day. Oh. So it's, uh, yeah, it's like not being a hugely physical person, kind of lying to yourself and saying you're going for the, what's it called? Uh, Olympics. I I don't even know the name. (laughs) See, you're going for the Olympics and you have to win. Yeah. 
you better say yes if you're really sure. Wow. Yeah. When you when you cut off there, I was going to say I did a rod, and I have no idea why my brain was like, <laughs> oh, a, a dog sled race. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're going to do. That's amazing. So, I, we're going to head into the end here, but I have one, yes, so one question, last question <laughs> about costume design before we get to our, our last segment. Um, you are doing a lot of dystopian things. You're doing The Passage, you're doing Handmaid's Tale. Even Westworld and um, Outcast have elements of that oh, sort of dystopian yeah. world. Do you enjoy going into that space or is that a space that, that because we're telling so many dystopian stories, you I just know. keep getting asked to work there? That's funny. I do enjoy it. Because I think it's uh, it's very heady, and it reminds me of things that I loved in my childhood, mm-hmm. um, where we started to question what the future was going to be. Yeah. And so my brain actually loves uh, experiencing that and sort of understanding and, and, you know, thinking on what that looks like. Am I, people are laughing at me saying, oh, yes, you're going to be this this dystopian designer. It's not that I want that, but shoot, I mean, who didn't love Blade Runner? Yeah. You know, who didn't love Mad Max and who didn't, who wasn't affected? Yeah. Affected. And so I, um, I love it. Like, will I get tired of it? Maybe, but mm. at least I'm not doing something that is not akin to who I am. Mm. You know, like, I don't know, sex pots do bobsledding on ice capades. <laughs> you know, I don't do that <laughs> because I wouldn't get hired. <laughs> so. so I ask uh, all my guests some of the same questions at the end of the show. Oh, cool. Uh, I don't know and, this. Uh, we're going to, uh, I'll, I'll start off with what is like the last piece of pop culture uh, that you didn't work on that you consumed? It can be like a song or a book or a movie huh. or whatever. And what did you think of it? Okay. The only thing that comes to mind because I'm always a thousand percent behind mm. on anything pop culture yeah. uh, And certainly I'm a flunky in that I never watch TV, mm. uh, even though I love it and I respect the medium. Uh, and I never see films. So the one thing that comes to mind, which actually helped me hugely on Handmaid's Tale, is the lobster. Did you see it? Oh, the lobster's great. Yeah. Oh, it, okay. I have not felt physically transformed and certainly mentally fucked up since... Tarantino yeah. early on in New York. I remember seeing, um, what's the one with uh, Woody Harrelson and um, Natural, Juliet Natural Lewis. Born Killers, yeah. yes. So I saw that and I literally, I've never done drugs. I've mm. never done, uh, I see I'm going to get it wrong, uh, the one that's hallucinogenic. I felt like I was on hallucinogenics for a week and I mm. wasn't the only one. I felt like the world of Manhattan had different colors mm. and sensibilities and timelines after that show. When I saw The Lobster, I didn't want to do it. I didn't have time. My sweetheart was like, we have to go see this film. I know he loved Dogtooth, mm. which I haven't seen yet. Mm. But he's like, we must go do this. I have a, I had a, I have a feeling you're going to really need this. And he went to get the car, right? I saw it. I love the story. I love everything. I love how they were dressed, which I never do. Mm. Not ever. Mm-hmm. He went to get the car and I was walking across the street and I literally thought, I think the world's changed since I've been in there yeah. in the cinema and I'm not sure what to do. I'm going to act like everything's normal. Like I felt that thing that I felt yeah. way back when with Natural Born Killers. Oh. And oh. so that was, uh, I probably saw it later than most, but it yeah. really affected me and, and I loved it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, who is the uh, designer, costume, fashion, whatever, that you've learned the most from that you've never met? <gasps> it's going to sound so stupid and cliche and poppy, mm. but uh, Comte de Garçon, mm. uh, Ray Kawakabu. 
uh, who's having, of course, this giant exhibition in New York right now. But I followed her and warned her things. She's a sage and a very interesting esoteric thinker and you could wear her clothing if you were a baby or if you were like fucking 100 years old yeah. and it would look the same mm. so i think that's amazing an inventor of clothing mm. Mm. and finally uh what is you can interpret this however you want people have interpreted <laughs> it in many different ways yeah i know i always lead into it with this people are always like what is he gonna say i know I your like, face I is very to, intense right i need now. to think of a different way to bring it up but uh, it could just be something you've seen a okay. lot. It can be something you were really inspired by. It can be something that you just like learn so much from. But what is like the work of art or culture or movie, TV, film, book, painting, whatever that you is to you the greatest you've ever seen? Wow. I was going to say something really dumb and banal, like <laughs> snow cones. I like snow cones. And snow then I was going to run. No. Uh, okay. I'm going to say his name wrong. There's this amazing photographer who shot a lot of gypsies. K-O-U. Something. Delelka? Oh, man. I'm saying it. Fucking it up. I have so many of his books, so you'd yeah. think I would learn to say his name. But they're black and white. They're, it's imagery that you—it feels like a little window mm-hmm. into a society of people that have not been honored or respected. Mm. And it's so full of life that I actually have worked a lot in Eastern Europe, and he, his work is really true. And I've seen that magic in person. Like, mm. I've seen horses untethered, you know— at the gypsy camp or just walking home to the gypsy camp, camp untethered, yeah. listening to music that leads them home. Like that guy's, <laughs> that guy that I can't say <laughs> his name properly is my, is one of those yeah. inspirational people for me that I keep those books right next to my arm's length yeah. when I'm going to do research. Well, Should I look it up? No, It'll, no. Yeah. People will find okay. it. People will figure it out. <laughs> She's lying. She just <laughs> likes snow cones. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with snow cones. Okay. Uh, and thank you so much thank for stopping you. by. You can watch The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Uh, Westworld is on HBO Now. Many of her other shows are on various thank streaming you. platforms. If you take nothing away from this uh, podcast, please watch Rectify. It's on Netflix. It's oh, great. Thank you for saying that. And uh, I look forward to seeing The Passage because I love those books. Oh, awesome. Thank, thank you, you, Todd. Thank you. On the way out, and wanted to tell me that the name of the photographer is Joseph Kodelka. That last name is spelled K-O-U-D-E-L-K-A. So if you want to look him up, then you can do that. And now it's time for your favorite segment, the closing credits. I Think You're Interesting is executive produced and hosted by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. The logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we record in the wonderful podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. The editor of this episode is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. We'll be back next week with another person from the world of arts and entertainment who I think is interesting. Until then, make sure that you have form-fitting, functional, wonderful clothes to wear today, and uh, make sure you wear them, because that's very important.
Peter, edit that out. Um, <laughs> Peter, uh, where's Peter? 